Welcome, everyone. This is podcast number eight. I have as my guest Barton Wang. Barton came on my radar uh, through Twitter, where he goes by the handle Barton underscore options. <clears throat> He's quickly become a legend on Twitter in the financial Twitter community for insanely well-timed calls about market movements. So we're just going to launch right into it. Barton, I guess you probably came on my radar about a year ago and i've been i've been following you so intensely that you're the first name that comes up on my on my twitter stream so you're the one that i interact with the most make sure i i, I never miss a tweet wow, um, I'm, re- I'm really flattered by the way thank you for having me on the show yeah uh I, i'm sure you've been contacted quite a bit on twitter because your calls have been uh quite remarkable your timing is exquisite is it is it true that you've you've had a, a lot of engagement there? Uh, I do have a lot of a large following, and then many DMs being sent to me every day. People are wondering how do I make the calls and what's behind it. Yeah, it's quite interesting because it also reflects how the market works these days. It's very different from two years or even uh, a year ago. Yes, and it's fascinating for me because uh, although I'm. A pretty young guy. I'm 41. I'm I'm very old school in the sense that uh, I've taken many PhD courses in economics. I taught economics for nine years. I've read all of the important books in the field, and 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 I I always have that uh, historical bent. So I sometimes struggle to uh, catch up to new regimes and you are squarely in the new regime. Um, and so I want to get right into it by leading w- with, with a question. Uh, a key part of your, your predictions are looking at liquidity conditions and having what is essentially an underlying assumption that increases in liquidity will lead to an increase in stock prices and decreases in liquidity will lead to decreases in stock prices. Um, this is not something that economic theorists would naturally come to because liquidity wouldn't necessarily lead to an increase in stock prices, according to theory. Uh, how did you come upon that linkage? Yeah, that's a very good question. So actually, Brendan, I have, ex- I am of exactly the same age group as you are. I'm also 41 years old today, uh, this year. And, uh, having very similar background in economic training, I, you know, went through the fundamentals, looking at all those before. But uh, I think in the past uh, couple of years, a couple of things really have changed and is making the, this market force that's driven by the Fed and Treasury liquidity condition much more so than, uh, let's say, three, four years ago. So what has changed? Um, from the macroeconomic perspective, in 2015, um, Basel III was adopted by m- most countries, especially in the U.S. and in Europe. And that has changed the regulation on the banking system, how banks manage their reserve. Basically, that's the currency. That's a digital currency every bank holds at the central bank. 
So in for, in Fed's case, it's the it's the uh, Federal Reserve Bank uh, Federal Reserve in New York Federal Reserve. There's a computer that has account for every single bank, and the Bank Reserve is literally what uh, the quantitative easing QE has been increasing uh, after the last financial crisis, and it's also what the QT uh, in 2018 has been reducing and causes the turmoil in the stock market. And in the past three months, we've seen a lot of increase in that account balance um, by Fed actions. And that bank reserve is essentially the liquidity we're talking about here, because that through Basel III, uh, which is a regulation um, passed by a number of uh, countries uh, together in uh, it adopted by, uh, you know, uh, ECB by by the Fed, and Fed actually increased the regulation uh, sort of intensity. They they tightened uh, the regulation a little bit more than what Basel III stipulated. So what that effect is is it changes how hedge fund, it changes how pension fund can leverage. How do they? How can they um, uh, increase their exposure to the market and? Uh, indirectly, or you may argue directly, uh, changes the basic buying power of a lot of the market participants. So that's a huge change, and we can go into details in a little bit uh, in the in the market that has made the the Fed liquidity condition up in front in how or what's driving the market. Another thing that has changed is uh, the the uh, relative activity between the option market and the stock market has really changed also since uh, 2015, 2016. That's a more gradual process, uh, partly driven by the negative interest rate policy of uh, Europe and Japan. A lot of the pension fund, a lot of the insurance company there, because they need yield, because they need to uh, be able to pay for the uh, liability they have in the future, they're really seeking yield in many different places, including the option market, this option market for US equities here in the US. So that essentially turned the option market extremely uh, active in the US and so active that the notional value being traded on the uh, US equity option market far exceeds the the, the underlying uh, stocks that uh, supports these options. So because of these changes, uh, you can now see that there are a lot of mechanical forces in the market. So the market is so different from uh, five, 10 years ago. If you just put out a, you pull out a stock charts, it's not like we had in the 2007, 2006, you have these um, prolonged topping process. You have a rounded top, a rounded bottoms. You have those uh, double bottoms. These days, the stock market just goes straight up or straight down, like a straight line. There's very little up and down volatility uh, that uh, you, you, you saw in the past. It's just either going up or either going down in a straight line. The tops are V-shaped, uh, inverse V-shaped. The bottoms are also V-shaped. This is all, in my view, driven by the mechanical forces in the market, meaning the 
the mechanical buying, the mechanical selling because of the, how the option market operates and because of how Fed supplies the liquidity. Do they limit these mechanical buyers' uh, purchasing power or are they taking away those purchasing power? Are they adding to the purchasing power? So all these forces adding together is causing the market to behave very differently. So uh, going back to your original question, how do I, why do I, and how do I examine the Fed liquidity condition? I have a background in academic research. I've been, a, been working in academia for many, many years. So what's really uh, caught my attention about two years, three years ago, was the, I've been watching the market for a long time, but that was really a side hobby. But what really caught my attention is I noticed the monthly and also the uh, slightly longer time frame, let's say three to six months, the up and downs and the stock of the stock market, uh, especially on the index level, so S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100, those are following very closely to the growth and to the shrinkage of the overall bank reserve balance at the New York Fed. So in 2018, if you remember, uh, we had a lot of monthly oscillations, sometimes 200 and 300 point oscillations in early 2018 after that uh, uh, VIX, uh, people call those uh, VIX apocalypse, that, uh, that episode in, in February. Uh, every first half of the month, the market rallies, and every second half of the month, the market sells off. And why is that? The only thing that fits with that kind of market movement was the bank reserve level at the Federal Reserve Bank at the time. So that really sparked my interest to look into the underlying linkage between the two. And the great advantage of studying this topic is because uh, Federal Reserve acts relatively slowly and they signal their move very early on. So you can pretty much map out what they're going to do um, three months ahead of time as long as they signal something. And that allows you to prepare yourself, to position yourself in the market, to anticipate a, a, a large move uh, or persistent move uh, with a pretty high accuracy. So that's why uh, Fed liquidity is, uh, is extremely powerful uh, in that regard. That's an amazing answer. So I'm gonna back up all the way to the beginning. So uh, you say it's, the new regime started in, 2015 with Basel III. It also, to some extent, started in 2008 when we started paying uh, interest on excess reserves and you started being able to, to draw more information from bank reserves at the Fed. Is that right? That's exactly right. And so, and so at the New York Fed, you have around 8,000 accounts or so, if I, maybe that's a little dated, but those accounts are, include all of the banks, they include the treasury, they include uh, major governments around the world and, and some major foreign banks, is that true? That's true, every single bank that does US dollar payment, inter, interbank payment has account at the New York Fed, uh, treasury as well, and also other central banks. And so and you're, you're able to get information uh, through public sources about what's happening with the 
the treasury account at the New York Fed, but not necessarily, necessarily information about the other accounts or what information is available to you? So New York Fed is extremely transparent in that regard. You can get an aggregated balance of the total bank reserves every Thursday to look at what's the, their uh, bank reserve level uh, on the previous day. So the Wednesday at the market close. You can get the account balance for US Treasury. Uh, you can get the overall balance of all the major central bank added together. You can also get the balance, total balance of uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, all the GSE, so government-sponsored entities, enterprises. Um, these are the major users of uh, New York Fed um, computer system or, or the, the bank reserve systems. And just to side rail for one moment, you've, you've gone further in your analysis and been able to conclude that the market is reacting differently based on whether an addition or a drain of reserves is happening to foreign banks versus U.S. banks. And you found that if the reserves are increasing for U.S. banks, it tends to be positive for the S&P. And if the, let's just say, um, reserves are decreasing and the decrease is coming disproportionately from foreign banks, that tends to be a negative for the dollar. Is that, is that a fair That's generalization? Exactly right. That's exactly right. So let me explain a little bit here. Uh, what is the bank reserve's main function at the Federal Reserve? There are basically three functions. Uh, Number one is for interbank payment. If I pay my mortgage today, uh, let's say from my checking account at Citibank to my mortgage servicer at Wells Fargo, if I pay, say, $5,000 on my mortgage, the Citibank New York Fed account has to pay $5,000 of the reserve into Wells Fargo's New York Fed um, bank reserve account. So every single payment we do will have a commensurate payment uh, cash flow in the New York Fed account. So every time we do that, uh, any dollar transaction, that has to be, be, be replicated at the New York Fed as well. That's what they do. Uh, any cash exceeding the necessary amount needed to satisfy the interbank payment can be used as basically liquidity for leveraging in uh, whatever market you like, stock market, uh, commodity future market, various markets. This is also because of the regulation after the financial crisis uh, in order to reduce the uh, risk in the system, there are stricter margin requirement, there are stricter risk requirement. And all, all of this ultimately is tied to how much bank reserve is available at New York Fed for the entire banking system that engaging that kind of activity through a lot of intermediaries like primary dealers and so on. So I'm not going into details here. Uh, but that's sort of the, the two, that's one application of, of the bank reserve. On the other hand, for the, and that's mostly domestic. On the other hand, if you look at the foreign banks who also hold, they are, 
they almost have half of the bank reserves of the total reserve as available at New York, uh, New York Fed. Foreign banks, they use US dollar for many other purposes. For example, Euro dollars is being uh, sort of transferred between different foreign banks and sometimes US banks uh, foreign branches for settlements of trades, uh, for loan activities, to, for investment, for a, a variety of uh, purposes. After Basel III was implemented, every single payment stream in Euro dollars would also need to be replicated in the New York Fed bank reserve account. So say if somebody is uh, paying for a large, let's say uh, China bought a Airbus 320 from, uh, from let's say France, then that payment, if, if it's conducting the US dollars of uh, say uh, $300 million, that payment stream will have to be reflected between the the uh, uh, New York Fed account between, let's say, if it's the Bank of China paying that money into uh, uh, BNP Paribas, you will see that pay that uh, uh, transfer between their bank reserve account as well. All right. So the availability of bank reserve, therefore, impacts the availability of the dollar for the global trade system. And uh, if the bank reserve is hoarded by international bank or foreign banks, then you will see more dollar availability in the global market. And then the dollar and euro exchange rate and dollar and, and Japanese yen exchange rate will see a uh, commensurate change. Or if you, if you have too much dollar, if you, the uh, foreign bank has high reserve, uh, you will you tend to see the US dollar fall a little bit relatively to other currencies. Basically, it's a, just a supply and demand issue over there. So these two are um, sort of competing uses of US dollar uh, or, or bank reserves at New York Fed. And sometimes you see this interesting uh, competing response of the market, uh, stock market uh, and the, the, the foreign exchange market. Uh, as New York Fed or as Treasury pull their lever and adjust the bank reserve levels from time to time. So this is a dynamic that didn't exist before, uh, before 2015, and it's getting more and more pronounced these days. Well, I still, I still want to examine the assumption of why liquidity would necessarily flow into financial markets. But before we do that, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the into these uh, New York Fed accounts because it seems central to what's going on at the moment with the re repo crisis and and the uh, melt up of equity markets. Um, so you mentioned that half of the bank reserves in New York Fed accounts are foreign banks. That's correct. Um, they're across uh, the entire planet. Uh, for example, Royal Bank of Canada, um, Credit Suisse, uh, UBS, uh, Deutsche Bank, they all have a huge hundreds of billions of dollars of, uh, of reserve, bank reserve being held under their names at New York Fed. So does that correlate over long periods of time with 
trade deficits. Like as the U.S. runs high trade deficits, the bank reserves of foreign banks tend to grow, or there's not necessarily that correlation. Uh, the correlation between trade deficits and the, the foreign bank reserve is not very strong. This is more of a current account balance issue, depending on how the cash overall cash flow uh, is being generated between U.S. and uh, overseas uh, banks. Um, so there could be foreign direct investment coming back into the U.S. to offset the the, the, the trade deficit, and that will show up in the in, in the um, balance of the. Uh, the foreign banks' bank reserves. Um, I would say that there are actually a lot of leeway between how the foreign banks and the domestic banks uh, adjust their relative relative ratio of their bank reserves. It's not a very strict rule that says, okay, this month the U.S. has uh, say two hundred million dollars of uh, current account deficit, and therefore the foreign bank reserve will increase by two hundred. $200 million. Um, the foreign banks can also participate in the U.S. repo market. But they do have a choice of putting those money into uh, putting those money into the euro dollar system for the international trade or uh, using that money in the U.S. to arbitrage the, the repo rate difference between what uh, uh, so hedge fund is doing versus how much uh, how much uh, Fed is uh, asking for the repo rate, for example. So so there are lots of flexibility for them to choose either uh, using that liquidity in a domestic in the U.S. money market, or you can call it short-term credit market between overnight to a year, or they can choose to use it in the the uh, the, the FX foreign exchange market. And that's sort of two competing. Uh, forces that's actually determined by the by the banks by the big banks. Now going back to the the repo crisis, uh, we had in early September a blowout in in repo rates and a quick panic, maybe a necessary panic, to restore order in that market. Take us back to when that's happening. What what are you what are you thinking and did did you predict it to some extent? I, I noticed you interact on Twitter a lot with uh, Posar, and he uh, he predicted it in a in a white paper a, f a few weeks before. So I'm wondering, uh, did you sort of see it coming, and what were your thoughts as it was happening? Yeah, that's a very good question. So back in September, we had a spike in the repo rate uh, overnight from uh, 2.5% all the way to 10%. Uh, that spike was a well anticipated by us for a long time. Uh, but in early August, we know that's going to happen. The big question at the time was, what sector of the market will will has effect on besides the short term interest rate market? Meaning, what will be the who will be the victim of such a spike? In the past, this has uh, affected the stock market in 2018, for example, in Q4 2018, whenever there's a liquidity shortage, like of that scale, you got, you got a, a big sell-off in stocks. Uh, but it's not something that's etched in the stone because banks has a lot of leeway in pulling liquidity or conducting margin calls on various counterparties they're trading with. So it wasn't clear to me at that time, meaning in August, what sector will be impacted. I was 
I was watching uh, the equity market very closely, but it wasn't a sure thing. Um, who will blow out, blow out first? But to address this question, let me go back to the earlier question you asked me. Uh, why does the liquidity affect stock prices so much? It seems to defy the economic theory we know uh, from, from you know, undergrad economic classes. Like why, why does it make sense for equity to rally so much with, uh, with let's say $60 billion of uh, liquidity injection we're having right now with the Fed? So one thing you can kind of make sense of this, I'm not justifying this rally. This is, a, to me, this is a, a huge bubble that I'm very uncomfortable with. But if you think about, for example, the discounted cash flow model for stock valuation, right? You're looking at the future cash flow of a company and you discount that with interest rate and look at the present value of this, their entire future cash flow. So if you consider the extreme case when the interest rate is kept at near, nearly zero, right? Then the present value of the cash flow, the future cash flow, is basically the same as the future value of the cash flow because interest rate is almost zero. So if you sum up an infinite stream of future cash flow, that basically gives you a stock price of infinity. So that means that if the 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 interest rate is really the real interest rate is kept at zero, you should expect the stock price to go up dramatically. Not in real world, it's not going to go to infinity, but it's, a, it's going to see a, a ridiculous rally. The real question is, how does this work in real life? How does the cut in interest rate close to zero transmit gradually through the financial system into a stock rally, a stock price rally? And I think there are basically two mechanisms. One is through the repo market, as you just mentioned. And this has to do with the, the, the ripple uh, blow up in September. And then the second thing is the credit market where a company can borrow money at uh, the, depending on their credit rating um, and use those money ideally to, to invest. But these days they're just buying back their share from the market, thereby increasing the stock value, right? So credit market is uh, easy. Uh, sort of a venue to, uh, to understand why stock rallies so much because companies are just raising more debt to buy back their shares to inflate their stock prices. Uh, I don't wanna get into whether this is a good way or bad way to use capital, but it's what's, what is happening right now. Now, the repo market, uh, the, the, the other part of the equation, uh, is something that Fed has a lot of control over. And uh, that is the action of the market not to buy the company themselves. This is a basically a funding market. If you, if you think about the, uh, what the equity market, who are the major players? This is the funding market for hedge fund for, uh, for the option market to gain their leverage. The, there's an implied leverage ratio for every option, right? For a call option, for put option, you have, a, you, you have a building leverage in there. That margin, that margining at the dealer level, it was financed through the repo market. If the repo market rate is high, that means the hedge funds will have to pay a lot more 
to gain the say 2x or 3x leverage they have on their book. Uh, and that's much higher than the treasury rate, the, three, the two year or three year treasury rate. They have to pay this repo rate every night to maintain their level of leveraging. Uh, the same thing applies to the, uh, you know, the future market. If you look at the, the future contango, the steepness between different expiry of the futures, there's a financing cost embedded in it. It also has to do somewhat linked with the repo market. And the option prices has a financing rate in it too, which is also implicitly linked to the repo market. So when the repo market rate has been lowered by the Fed, and also when the repo market has been supplied with huge amount of liquidity by the Fed, that just removes the, uh, removes the uh, cap, the cost, of uh, leveraging for a lot of uh, major players in the market. And that's a kind of adding a lot of fuel to the fire when you have a stock rally is just continue on um, as we have seen in the past three months. Well, a, a couple things happened in the big picture that the Fed might not have anticipated. Um, one is they probably didn't anticipate that the repo market would be used for speculation in this way. And they possibly didn't anticipate that, for instance, large hedge funds would be essentially sponsored by important banks to access this market to finance position. So it's possible that they didn't anticipate that there would be um, so much use of the repo market by speculative players. And then another thing that might have been unanticipated that's more important over the long term is the, the fact that financing the government has become an increasing challenge. We always knew that you had structural deficits increasing at this time due to aging populations and healthcare expenses rising more rapidly than other expenses and, and big macro factors that we've known about for 40 years. Um, but you have the increase in structural deficits at a time when Trump is actively trying to beat down the, the trade deficits, which the trade deficits, for a while we were running six, $600 billion trade deficits and the, all of that $600 billion was being recycled into treasuries and and uh, government-sponsored security. So, so now, now the deficits are going up, and the trade the trade deficits are going down, and it's a struggle to fund the government, even though we're at a peak economic time. And that's that seems to be at the core of what's happening. That that the Fed had to step in because the ability of the, the government to finance itself cheaply was at stake. That's exactly right. I think Fed's hands are pretty much forced. And as you said, this equity market rally is, is indeed an unintended consequences of uh, their monetary policy. And I think that's a, probably a secondary consideration to them as opposed to the short-term interest rate they're trying to control. But in the, I think overall, the Fed is not uh, concerned with a, a, a stock market rally because uh, there's all these pension fund obligations that need to be paid out. And then 
baby boomers are pretty under invested in their retirement savings and then seems to be that a equity market bubble is uh, somewhat uh, aligned with every well with the a lot of people's interests let me put it that way uh, because a lot of the money that's flowing into the so okay when fed release liquidity into the system uh, if you look at the classical economics theory uh, that's the base money right there's a money multiplier um, that leverage or, or, or amplify this, the impact of this, this money and put it into real use. And a lot of this mo money multiplier is coming from Europe, from Japan, because their yield is negative and they want to also pay for their pension obligations, so they chase yield in the US. And when they do that, uh, I guess it's a game of uh, music chairs or chicken and see who will blink first and then exit the bubble uh, before everybody else. And uh, at the moment, the bubble is still blow, uh, growing and uh, nobody seems to be very concerned, but uh, in the long run, it could be an issue. And also, one thing I wanna mention is that um, some of these may, be, may not be that sort of uh, uh, driven by fundamental economic theory, as you were saying earlier, earlier, a lot of the trading these days are done by uh, algorithms that's basically optimize their strategy or trading their strategy just based on historic data, right? What will be, what will a machine learning algorithm learn in the past 10 years and past 30 years? All they learn is buy the dips, um, buy stocks when the, the central banks are easing their policy. So if a large portion of the market just perpetuate that kind of behavior, every time the central bank add more fuel into the system, it's going to trigger these algorithm and that just cause the system to, to behave like a, a giant bubble. Well, in the immediate term, the repo, when it started, when the intervention started, Jerome Powell was very quick to say that this is this is not quantitative easing. This is a, these are short-term arrangements, um, and we know that that's probably not true just because of the ongoing necessity of the government to finance itself and the and the flood of deficits coming. It's we know that in the long term that's probably not true. The balance sheets will continue to expand, but. It is repo after all, it's got reverse in the title. They should, there, there should be some short periods of time where it does reverse. And it, in the immediate term, we're likely to get some pay down of balances over the next month or so, is that true? So the Fed is doing two things right now. One is uh, the ongoing rolling of their repo uh, balance for the overnight and term repo. They are reducing that as you were saying, but they're also doing that uh, not QE or uh, POMO, as I call it, permanent open market operation. They're buying T-bills at $60 billion a month. The intent of that operation is to, to, be, to allow them to gradually reduce their repo balance and turn those, those into permanent uh, T-bills uh, on, the, on the Fed balance sheet and uh, increase the bank reserve um, at the same time. That's actually a little bit of easing because for a repo operation, the bank has to pay 1.55% for every uh, dollar they liquidity they get from the Fed. For the, through the T-bill purchase, the bank pays nothing. 
for those liquidity they get. They actually get paid the IOER for holding those liquidity. So, so, the, so the Fed is actually doing easing right now, not to the, well, I would say it's a pretty significant easing uh, by historic standard, because uh, if you compare this to QE1 to QE3, the rate of uh, the amount of liquidity they injected at the time was more like uh, 50 billion per month, uh, 35 billion per month at times. So this is a pretty significant amount of liquidity entering into the system. That being said, everything down here is being done at the very short end of the risk curve, right? So the T-bill they're purchasing is uh, on the average six months to, X2 to maturity. Uh, the repo operation they did in last September, October, those were uh, overnight repos and at most 30-day um, repos. So those are very short-term securities on the risk curve. Addressing the question you're talking about, about the fiscal deficit, I think down the line, the Fed will, down the line meaning in two to three years time frame, the Fed will have to buy longer duration um, treasury bonds. And when that happens, that's a even bigger risk on move for the stock market because uh, that will push capital further out on the risk curve and even uh, if causing, causing the, the, the either the equity market, the gold and other commodities to, to increase in value. But in between, between now and then, I think there could be some period of time we see a pullback, we see, we see some uh, uh, sort of uh, cooling down of this, uh, of this uh, bubble phase of the market. Going back to uh, September, um, the initial communication about repo interventions might have been technically correct in that they were doing a short-term uh, operation. It wasn't uh, balance sheet expanding over the long term because it would be paid back and it, it wasn't necessarily, uh, it was short term stabilizing to markets, but it wasn't necessarily going to spike markets because it would be reversed. Um, right. I, I, but I guess market participants sort of saw the writing on the wall that it couldn't, it couldn't be reversed because you have this ongoing requirement of the treasury to issue bonds and eventually you can trade bonds for cash but the bonds keep coming so you have to you you have to uh at some point they can't be they can't be reversed the balance sheets the new york fed there when they execute these policies i think they erred on the safe side and they supplied as much liquidity as needed or probably exceeds the, the, what the market needed by uh maybe a hundred billion dollars uh, most of the time, just to make sure the optics looks good. There is no a second flare up of the repo issue. Um, especially the timing was kind of interesting. September uh, was the time when you go from Q3 to Q4, and that's usually the time when the um, cross currency uh, 
basis between U.S. dollar and uh, Euro and U.S. dollar and Japanese yen start to flare up because of the end of the year liquidity constraint on those foreign banks. And then end of the year in December, there's always this issue of banks balance sheets become constrained because of the uh, the Basel III, the, the Fed regulation, uh, banks have to hold enough capital, enough liquidity to, there's a, there's a GCIP score, for example, that's being rated on all the major big banks, uh, that they have to keep it low, otherwise they have to raise capital to, to, to uh, avoid the having any bank runs in the future. These are all regulations after, coming after, uh, being put into place after the financial crisis. And they caused these uh, uh, seasonal shortages on liquidity. So because of this issue, New York Fed just basically threw like $250 billion very quickly into the system to avoid any flare up for the end of the year. And now we have passed the end of the year turn and uh, uh, they're reducing the liquidity. They're pulling back very slowly. The, not at the uh, 200 billion per month rate, they're pulling back at, I think, um, 10 to uh, 20 to 40 dollar, 20 to 40 billion dollar a month rate. So much, much slower, an order of magnitude slower when they throw in the liquidity. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, you see this uh, anti-symmetric response of the market. You have a quick rally and the, the, the rally is not reversed uh, after this liquidity is gradually being taken away. Well, the New York Fed, as you know, has a, has a history of market-friendly responses from the Geithner Times and also earlier in the LTCM bailout. And that's it's not, not so surprising. That's, that's just the way it works. Uh, it's, I find it interesting going to the theory uh, of how liquidity and prices should be linked. You mentioned that if you have discounted cash flow analysis with uh, very low interest rates, you can justify high prices. But the the key thing that's changed is that there has always been thought to be a close linkage between the term structure of interest rates and inflation. So uh, I think the key disconnect that happens now is you have permanent financial repression where interest rates are expected to remain low forever all the way out the term structure, even though expected inflation is going up. So essentially you have high stock prices justified on the basis of very low discounted rates where the, where the discounted rates no longer bear any relation to the inflation embedded in, in expected cash flows. That's exactly right. And also because uh, New York Fed has been so friendly to the market, they the market participant basically expected the New York Fed to provide uh, low rate liquidity. Uh, and if they don't, uh, a you know two day crisis, quote unquote crisis, with a 10% ripple spike is sufficient to trigger New York Fed to provide low cost liquidity for months, right? So if that's the expectation of the market participant, mo- as most of the Hedge fund, a lot of the hedge fund and pension fund are doing today. They're just getting their finance through very short-term overnight um, repos, and then who cares about the ten-year, uh, thirty-year uh, part of the yield curve? Because you can get cheap financing on the on the short end, and you can always roll it over 
because New York Fed is always going to be the dealer of last resort and provide the liquidity, uh, being your counterparty when you need it. Um, that's sort of create this uh, this uh, unfortunate unfortunate dynamic in the market that people are just piling on the risk assets. You mentioned also the option markets as another key element of your uh, of your analysis, and um, I I notice you get especially active on Twitter around option expiration. Take take us through um, take us through the your views simplistically of the interactions between the index option market and the stock market. Why, why necessarily does an increase in demand for, let's say, writing put options in the case of these uh, foreign parties that you say are seeking yield, um, why, why is that affecting underlying stock prices? Good question. And let me just start from the, the basics. When a foreign uh, pension fund, for example, they write a SPX put option. So that, that means they sell a protection on the, um, on the, for the buyers of the put option. Um, say, let's just make a round number and make this, make this uh, easier. So let's say a pension fund sells a put option uh, that is 10% below the current price of SPX. Uh, and that will expire uh, in the future, three months from today. And uh, uh, there's, an, there's a number what we call delta. Uh, basically, it's a property of the, of the option that tells you if SPX move by $1, how much will that option price change? Uh, for 10%, uh, I don't have the I don't have the quote in front of me, but uh, roughly that should be about uh, uh, fifteen to twenty delta, which means the option price will change fifteen to twenty percent for every dollar price uh, change in SPX. So when you sell something like this, who is the buyer? Who are the buyers? Usually, um, in the past, let's say ten years ago. The buyers are usually other uh, asset managers who use put options to hedge their portfolio as an insurance policy in case of a sudden drawdown on their uh, sudden crash in the market, right? But these days, there's so much sellers of the um, put options and also the call options. The, they're still these uh, organic buyers of asset manager, but a lot of times the buyers are, are just option market market makers. So these are professional trading firms, prop trading firms that be the counterparty of whoever is buying or selling um, on the market. That's kind of funny. Uh, That's kind of funny what a dramatic reversal that is because for decades, the business was that the insurance on the S&P, if you, if you would, would be written by the option market makers and they would be bought by market participants. Now you're saying that it's the that it's the market makers that are that are essentially buying the insurance. Yes, there are too many insurers, not enough customers. That, that's so. that's that's a crazy reversal. Yeah, and uh, and it's crazy that everybody wants to buy insurance for uh, sell insurance. On sell it, sell, sell insurance. Well, it's insane that people will seek seek yield sitting on a bomb. That's a totally totally crazy marketplace. We can all agree. So the option market. 
uh, has sort of a change of dynamic of who are the buyers and who are the sellers. And now, after the financial crisis, there are much stricter rules on how much risk a prop trading firm can take because they have margin requirements for their accounts at the uh, CME, at uh, uh, CBOE uh, exchanges. So they have to hedge their delta, meaning they have to make sure that their account balance are not affected by the, by the SPX movement, the underlying index movement. Um, so these market makers, they're not trading, they don't have directional view. They don't wanna hold directional views for the most part. What they are trying to do is to figure out whether the implied volatility of the option was priced correctly. Is the time decay of the option is priced correctly? The, whether the probability, so there's a cost for the option, for the auto money option uh, to be priced the way there, there is. The auto money option at expiration, they're worthless. But before expiration, let's say three months ahead of time, they're worth quite a bit of money because there's always a probability of having a crash and getting these mar this option in the money, right? So the market maker don't want the directional part. They only want to have the volatility part priced correctly. So in order to avoid having the directional view, they keep hedging their, the directional part of the option um, value. It's that hedging activity from the market makers and also the hedging activity from some other uh, market participants uh, such as uh, vol controlled funds, uh, volatility uh, arbitra uh, arbitration fund. Those funds, they also hedge out their delta component of their options. And these, these mechanical buying and selling, so when they hedge, they're basically buying or selling um, SPX uh, futures. Uh, or they, they buy the underlying stocks. That's very rare for them to do the underlying stock because it's much more um, costly and expensive. It's not as clean. So they, so at this moment, typically that hedging flow accounts for about 18 to 36% of the future market daily activity. If you just look at the uh, the uh, exchange traded options, if you take into account the OTC, the over-the-counter options, they probably take up about uh, 35 to even six, to uh, 55 percent of all the future trades. That's so. So in option markets in general, for the for it to affect stock price, you have to have one party basically doing something in the underlying and the other party not doing something in the underlying. So what's happening here is that they, roughly speaking, let me see if I have this right. The, the foreign party, let's say a yield seeking fund is writing options on SPX for yield. And right. they are writing options without doing something on the underlying and a, a US market maker who thinks that these options are underpriced in terms of implied vol, 
buys the put. And then as the, when they bought the put, they're now effectively short the market. So to hedge out that exposure, they buy, they buy the market in the S&P futures. Is that about right? That's exactly right. And they buy 15% uh, of the notional exposure of the, of the puts. Right. So, so the insane part of this is that for, for this interaction to be happening, there have to be some parties writing a lot of unhedged index options. Right. And there are tons of people doing that. It's a, a, a big part is coming from the foreign pension funds, insurance companies. Uh, also, U.S. pension funds are doing a lot of this activity as well. They also call it just yield enhancement strategies. So this is like a this is like a whole new level of bubble or nothing, like all in or bust. Like this is it's a whole new a whole new level for pension funds. They yes. they weren't going to meet their actuarial responsibilities by by investing in bond markets, so they had to take some gambles, and this is the one that they've come on. Well, they backtested this for the last 30 years when nobody's doing this, right? But now everybody's doing it and the backtesting would not show, up, show that part of data until 10 years from now. So everybody's doing it. Um, and then there's a third part that involves retail investors that are that, which is the uh, structured products being sold in Asia, in Europe, in Canada. Those are um, notes. Those are like fixed income-like products which has the payout um, similar to shorting a put option uh, tied up to the, to the underlying. Like it's, it's, if you search some of these, it's uh, actually quite amazing. There are gazillion uh, structured notes that says, okay, we'll give you 10% a year provided that uh, um, say Boeing does not crash for more than 30% this year. And then they don't increase their value by more than 10% this year. You, all the major stocks, every major stock that have large option open interest are basically uh, having a huge inventory, a huge volume of structured product written over them. There are structured products written on Delta Airlines, on CVS, on everything you can think of. Yeah. So this is, this is beyond insane. Like there, uh, and those options are complex barrier style options, which are difficult to analyze. And require banks to hedge like crazy, especially in a, in a market crash. So that uh, further exacerbates the um, straight up and straight down movement of the, of the uh, underlying stocks. Like for example, the recent uh, rally in Apple, uh, I suspect has to do with some of the Structured product, structured product uh, being rolled over because it exceeds their upper, uh, you know, knocking barrier for the auto calls, um, and they got rolled into the, into new auto calls, and the hedging activity provides a lot of buying in the in the um, underlying uh, underlying stocks. It's not a hundred percent the reason, but it contributes quite a bit to to the rise of. Uh, of the stock value of Apple. So putting, putting everything you're saying together, it's, it seems likely that you either have a low volatility regime, which then tends to have virtuous cycle elements, which perpetuates a low volatility regime, or 
you have, if for some extraneous reason you go into a high volatility regime, there, there are forces that are forcing you into higher volatility still. So you could have almost like a, like a financial singularity explosion. That's exactly right. So we are in this buying because more buying and selling because more selling kind of uh, market environment. Uh, all you need is a tweet from Trump, right, to, <laughs> to switch regime. And I think that happened uh, last year in May and August. Just to paint this picture, like, let's say back to this simplistic example where you have the foreign fund, they are, they are uh, selling puts, you then you have the domestic funds, maybe a market maker, buying the puts, hed hedging out the market exposure. Um, at some point, let's, let's just take the simple example where the person selling the put is entirely unhedged, is not interacting with the spot market at all. That's right. Um, the, a lot of the vicious cycle component, one would think, would come because, okay, they're unhedged. Now they're down 10, the underline's down 10%. They remain unhedged. Now the underline's down 15%. They say, oh, F, like, maybe I should hedge now. Let's cover, let's, let's, uh, let's get rid of this position, yeah. Um, is that, like, what is the thinking of their behavior? How will they uh, behave? as because they're on the line for the whole thing they've written the put they're on the line for everything so what's the game plan with this unhedged position if things go down they consider themselves hedged they're cash hedged so ideally they don't write a tons of these um unhedged puts versus their entire portfolio value right so if you're not oh okay put it in another way they consider themselves not overly leveraged. If they only do this to a small extent, then they can stomach occasional big drawdowns. But over the long period of time, for example, their look back window probably is the past 30 years or 40 years, then over a five year period of time, overall, they're going to win out by continue to engage in uh, underwriting of puts. But, but if, if if option markets are a zero sum game and you're saying that the other side of this trade is like Susquehanna and people like that, they're not winning over the long term. Right, and also the market has been changing. I think the, the, the players are different these days from three, four years ago. And then the, the, how many people are engaging in the same activity? Are, are they crowded out? That's also different. So I do not think their assumption for yield enhancement is correct. So they've been misled by, by backtesting over fairly narrow periods of time? A very long, well, very... Uh, like two, we, I consider 20 years like a, a, like a short period of time. They, they've been misled by backtesting in the relatively recent past. Possibly. That's right, that's right. But I guess if you go back like 50 years, 80 years, there's not a lot of option data that's out there. It wasn't the option market, it wasn't really developed at that time to, to, uh, to give you any useful information, right? So, so they are kind of uh, uh, in uncharted territory right now, but it just, this trade has been too crowded. Everybody is piling onto it. Well, I, 
I feel like I could chat with you for hours, but I I, I want to keep us to a 90 minute thing. I want to I want to hit a couple of more topics. Structured products. You had you had some retail products in volatility that um, led to some market distortions and then a blowout in what was that? January, February 2017. Is that right? Uh, February 2018. February 2018. Um, and that was those structured products became really popular in a fairly short period of time before that, right? Like in a year and a half or two years before that. Right. That became really popular after um, Trump became the president, I think. Uh, there was a warning sign of uh, some really significant loss can occur already in the summer of 2015 when China devalued uh, its currency suddenly. And during that episode, I think uh, there was like a 15 or 20 percent drawdown on some of the on the VIX ETFs uh, over like one or two days. Um, I think a lot of people who are early traders, including me on those products, got the, got the warning and uh, um, pared back a lot on those, on those uh, products. But in 2017, because of the uh, promise of a significant tax cut, I think you see a fresh new wave of new investors just flooded in, flooding into uh, VIX ETFs shorted VIX ETFs uh, during that time, because it was actually a very difficult period of time for people to trade options in, in uh, indices like SPX. Uh, the volatility was really low. Uh, implied volatility was really low. Uh, realized volatility was really low. There's very little edge in the market. And so people just pile, just pile up onto these, uh, these VIX ETFs. And then uh, when that February 18 happened, the blow up, uh, there was a quick reversal in behavior, right? Because the sting was so significant. That's right. They, a lot of people got burned and then they paired back on the short VIX trade. But the short option implied volatility trade, like selling out of money puts and selling out of money calls, those were continue to gain momentum and get traction, which caused the Q4 2018 market correction because uh, there was a lot of puts being written basically before the October crash and also before the December crash. And the, the covering of those puts basically pushed the market downwards uh, to the extent we saw. So basically to the same, uh, the same idea as you mentioned earlier in your, in your example, when you sell a put option, the market maker has to buy the underlying uh, indices, index. The, when, you, when you buy the put option, the, the market maker had to sell the, the underlying indices. So when a lot of people are covering their their very uh, scary positions of short puts, that actually pushes the market even lower. Uh, I want to hit 
one other topic. I want to hit the topic of the uh, interaction of high-frequency trading and buybacks. This is one thing you, you sort of hinted at. Um, so uh, we have an unprecedented level of buybacks. Um, and buybacks in terms of economic theory are not so terrible. Uh, it sounds like we both have our view that it's bad, it's bad policy. It's not a great thing that's happening right now, but whatever, put those views aside. Um, in terms of simple economic theory, um, it's not so bad because it doesn't change the underlying realities. Um, however, when I look at the at the practical aspect of it, um, buybacks are a bit bad for everyone. If if the company can't buy back its own shares in a frictionless way, there's economic theory. Theory would assume that buybacks are neutral. However, that's only true if efficient markets hold and you're able to buy and sell unlimited quantities of shares without moving price. Right. What seems to be happening today is companies are buying back shares at record levels. And as they buy back shares, possibly because of high frequency trading, the, the price is moving on them and they're, they're having to pay a, a high price for the equity share that they're getting. And if that is the reality, then it's bad for all parties. Um, right. So, um, do you do you think that there's some of that? Like, do you feel like buybacks are are in fact a, a key part of, of price movement these days, or of, of share demand? Yeah, I think that's uh, probably accounts for forty to fifty percent of uh, the underlying forces that are pushing the price up. It's basically providing a floor for the uh, for the single names so that they don't fall too much uh, the buyback bid is always there to to elevate the market i agree with you in the frictional in the frictionless market it's a, this is a sort of a it's arbitrage right it's it's a it's an arbitrage that if if there's a difference in in the uh, cost of financing, then you should be engaging the share buyback if the debt is really cheap. But uh, um, it's a little, it's going overboard now that uh, the companies are loading up themselves with tremendous of, of, of debt that may not be able to uh, repay it uh, in a recession uh, and can cause significant uh, pain for the company and for the, for the companies and for the economy. Uh, in the long run um, and use those cash just to buy back their shares. That's, that's pretty, that's basically uh, turning the, turning the, sh turning the bondholder into shareholder in the future. You can see, so every, every, most companies are engaging in the same tactics of airlines, what they did in the early 2000 when they load up, load themselves up with huge amount of debt and then they have to go bankruptcy and then uh, turn the bondholders into shareholders. I feel like a lot of the, the big cap companies are doing exactly the same, same uh, using exactly the same playbook these days, which is unfortunate. Yeah, and it's maybe long-term unfortunate for the equity holders. 
Right, because they will be wiped out and then the bondholder will turn on turn into new equity holders. So in our last five minutes, since I promised the uh, the, the 1230 hard stop, tell me what's what's on your radar for analysis in 2020? What what sort of things are you are you looking at day to day, week to week? Um, I'm mostly looking at what the Fed and Treasury are doing. Uh, whether they're changing their courses, how the uh, the there's, there's several uh, market forces uh, in the option market, um, how the um, positioning, how the open interest, and how the volume of the option changes in indices in in major um, uh, currency pairs as well, because uh, there are lots of foreign players in the US equity market um, as well. So I think the market is definitely over, has overextended itself. And this is not an organic rally. Um, lots of air pocket below. Uh, everybody is waiting for a pullback. Is uh, there's, if, if there's a big pullback, there's definitely no bid below this. A lot of people knows this, know this. Um, but, you know, Fed is still injecting liquidity, so nobody wants to stand in the way of this steamroller of, uh, of uh, um, you know, non-stop bidding up of, uh, of the big cap uh, stocks and the indices, right? So I will be very vigilant towards uh, the end of that bidding process and um, probably look for opportunities to to, to see the market uh, mean revert a little bit towards the later half of the year, especially we're in the election year, right? The market is supposed to be, and typically has been pretty volatile in the, in the, in the election year. I love it. Well, I will, I will continue to follow uh, every tweet and every reply. Uh, I encourage all the listeners to go to Twitter and follow Barton underscore options. Um, with that, uh, this might be my favorite podcast ever. I really enjoy getting into it with you. Uh, I hope we can do this again sometime. Really appreciate it. Thank you a lot for having me on, Brandon. All right. Bye. Bye.